Good morning. A joy to be gathered this morning in God's house where the temperature feels good and the sun is shining outside. I've been enjoying summer. I hope you are as well. Welcome to our visitors. Good to see uh, a few sprinkled here. Daryl and Kendra, your family. There's others. Welcome you here this morning and also our home folks. I know it's a holiday weekend, so we are glad for you that are here. Shall we bow our heads and pray? Loving Father, thank you for your mercies that are new this morning. Our hearts are cheered by sunshine. We are also cheered by being together in your house and worshiping with one another as a brotherhood. We ask you to continue to be here. We believe you've been here in our worship thus far, and our desire is that you would be lifted up and glorified. And we just invite your Holy Spirit, Lord, to teach us your truth and help us, Lord, to uh, understand the truth, to, to believe the truth. And, um, Lord, we believe your truth sets us free. And so we claim that promise this morning. We invite you into our service, every part of it. We also pray for the gathering at Cornerstone this morning. Brother Ken, as he leads their worship, or their, uh, mess, the message there this morning, would you be with them as well? We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Tomorrow is July 4th, Independence Day. What does a day like Independence Day mean to you? I've grown up always knowing what July 4th is. I moved to Belize and I understood that, I found out that they have Independence Day too, but it's not July 4th. I think it was in September. And so everybody, no matter where you grow up, Independence Day has, has a certain meaning to you. Because there's a, there's a story behind it. There's a historical event, perhaps. And I've been thinking about what all goes with Independence Day. This is a time of a lot of national pride. You see flags being flown. You're hearing of fireworks and parades. And for the United States, we celebrate independence breaking away from England hundreds of, a couple hundred years ago. So from a national perspective, what is the price of earning and keeping freedom. This is a time when our nation celebrates and remembers the bloodshed for winning our independence. And what does it take to keep that freedom? Well, there's probably a lot of answers for that. I'm sure all of you are aware that some of the momentous things in our nation in the last week, uh, Roe versus Wade being overturned after 50 years, that's older than a lot of us in this audience, that's, that's been there our entire lifetimes for many of us. And for some, that was, that's a sign of moving in the right direction, a movement maybe towards, towards right and good again. For others, there's claims that freedoms are being taken away. So you see, many of us define freedom in different ways. We probably have understandings of freedom, and we may think, um, we may have different ideas on how to preserve Freedom. Well, I'm not here to talk about national freedom this morning, but I do want to talk about freedom in Christ. All of us understand that freedom comes with restrictions. Uh, as, as being free people here in America, we are given constitutional rights, but even constitutional rights are not absolute rights. You don't have the right to walk into my home anytime you please. You don't have that right. You have, a, you have freedom of movement, but you don't have that right. 
We all know that within a society, there are limitations to freedom. It's just the way society works. I don't have the right to drive as fast as I want to on the highway. I wish I had that right sometimes, but I don't have it. But, you know, I do have the right to own my own car. In fact, I can choose what color car I want. I have the right to drive my car anytime, 24-7. I can get out on the road, and there is no restrictions on when I can be on the road. But when I'm on the road, then some restrictions apply. There's speed limits. There's rules. Why is that? Well, for a free society with constitutional rights, there has to be a balancing between the public welfare against individual rights. That's just how it works. There is the good of the public, but there's also the protection of the individual. So that happens in a society like ours, and I'm grateful for that. Uh, we see what happens when you take that away. Some cities in our nation today are, are relaxing or they're eliminating part of their police force. They are relaxing uh, criminal prosecutions. They're allowing open drug use. And it's all in the name of, of a better society. You know, it's, it's because of all these consequences that that we have problems. Let's just take away the consequences like prosecution. Let's take away the policemen who enforce and surely things will get better. Well, we know that doesn't work and we see chaos come as a result of that. So the only way freedom can stand is if there are limitations to freedom. Well, how does that translate into our freedom in Christ? If we're free in Christ, are we not fully and truly free? What is our understanding of freedom in Christ? In Galatians chapter 5, verse 1, Paul says, Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty wherewith Christ hath made us free, and be not entangled again with the yoke of bondage. Now, I want to give you a little bit of context, because Paul starts this verse by saying, Stand fast, therefore. Whenever we see a word, the word therefore or wherefore, it calls us to look at what has been said prior to this, this verse or prior to this passage. So he's telling them to stand fast in this liberty, be not entangled again with the yoke of bondage. Now, if we would just look at um, just this verse by itself, uh, we could possibly make some applications for, for nationalism. We could possibly say, well, once you have liberty, you hang on to liberty at all costs. Don't allow anybody to take away your freedoms. Uh, we could look at this yoke of bondage as being explicitly a, the bondage of sin, which is true to a degree, but there's a bit more here that he's talking about. So I want to get a, a bit of that context before we go on. This verse is following several chapters where Paul has been establishing the case that it is through faith in Christ that we become children of God. It's through faith in Christ. It's not through works of the law. So he's writing the letter of Galatians to address this issue. So if we look back a couple chapters, I'm just going to briefly mention a few verses that I found throughout Galatians that maybe help set the table a bit and give a bit of context. Uh, he starts in chapter 1. In verses 6 and 7, Paul says, I marvel that ye are so soon removed from him that called you into the grace of Christ unto another gospel. He's marveling. How could you? You had the gospel, the true gospel, and now... You're taking on something new or something else. Then he says, which is not another, but there be some that trouble you and would pervert the gospel of Christ. I believe these were Judaizers. There were Jews who were insisting 
that Christians, Gentile Christians, had to keep performing some of the law, the law of Moses. And Paul is addressing that directly. In chapter 2, he calls out some of the, the real pillars of, the, of, the Jewish, of this faith, the Christians. Uh, in verse 9, he says, And when James, Cephas, and John, these are all Jews, these are all church leaders, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given unto me, they gave to me and Barnabas the right hands of fellowship, that we should go unto the heathen and they unto the circumcision. So there had already been an understanding that the Gentiles were welcome into the faith. They, they were not outsiders. They were welcome. And that had been already established. But some things happened after that. Um, further down, P, uh, Paul says, When Peter was come to Antioch, I withstood him to the face because he was to be blamed. For before that certain came from James, he did eat with the Gentiles. But when they were come... He withdrew and separated himself, fearing them which, which were of the circumcision. And the other Jews dissembled likewise with him, insomuch that Barnabas also was carried away with their dissimulation. But when I saw that they walked not uprightly according to the truth of the gospel, I said unto Peter before them all. And then I'm, gonna, I'm not going to read the rest of that, but he calls him out because Peter had been fellowshipping with Gentiles and then some Jews come from James. And when Peter was in the presence of his countrymen, he got afraid. And he didn't, he didn't exercise the freedom in Christ that now, now Gentiles were part of the faith. It was okay to be fellowshipping with them. And he, he drew aside and it influenced others. And it said everybody was drawn into this. Even Barnabas got sucked into this. And they created a division. And Paul called them out and said, this is wrong what you're doing. This is not what the gospel of Christ is all about. <clears throat> and then he reaffirms that. Verse 16, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by the faith of Jesus Christ. Further down, he says, For if I build again the things which I destroyed, I make myself a transgressor. Paul is pretty adamant that this, the, the faith in Christ, the liberty in Christ, where all have access, where fellowship can happen, the fact that they were moving away from that and requiring more than what the gospel was calling for, he says, you're building again the things which had been destroyed, had been put away. So that's what he's, that's what he's addressing here. That was in, uh, in chapter 2. Go on to chapter 3. He, Paul appeals again to the, the church here. He says, O foolish Galatians, who hath bewitched you? You guys had it. You had the gospel given to you. How are you being deceived? Verse 2. This I would only learn, received ye the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Are ye so foolish? Having begun in the Spirit, are ye now made perfect by the flesh? Later on in this, in this passage, he then he establishes again, what was the law for? Up to this point, they had observed the law. When Christ came, the law was put aside. It had been fulfilled. But he said, what was the purpose? Verse 19, wherefore then serveth the law? It was added because of transgressions, till the seed should come to whom the promise was made. Well, Christ was that seed, and he had come. It had been accomplished. Verse 21. Is the law then against the promises of God? God forbid. No, he says it's not against it. For if there had been a law given which could have given life, verily righteousness should have been by the law. Again, do you, do you understand what he's saying? You, he's calling them out for trying to go back to law when they had been given faith in Christ. And not only were they going back to that themselves, they were imposing that on Gentile believers. And Paul is addressing that directly. Verse 24, wherefore the law was our schoolmaster 
to bring us unto Christ that we might be justified by faith. But after that faith has come, we are no longer under a schoolmaster. That gives you a little bit of the context of where he's saying now in, in verse 1 of chapter 5, uh, where he's, he's basically telling them to stand fast in this liberty where Christ made you free. Get entangled again in this yoke of bondage. So that's a little bit where we're starting here. Freedom in Christ. What is our understanding of freedom in Christ? Well, a couple statements here I'd like for you to think about. Freedom in Christ is not freedom to be indifferent to the will of God. Paul, he just got done rebuking them for wanting to go back to the old law, but he's not calling them to be indifferent to God and his will. The second thing to think about, freedom in Christ is not freedom to sin or fulfill my fleshly desires presuming on God's grace. You all know the very familiar passage in Romans chapter 6, verses 1 and 2, where he says, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? So clearly, freedom in Christ is not a freedom to sin. We know that. Also, freedom in Christ is not passiveness to righteousness, godliness, and purity. This freedom is not somehow liberating us from God's commands and God's standard. It was a liberation from the law, which was only a shadow of things to come. But Christ was the substance of what that was leading to. And when Christ came, when he says, when you have, the, when you have Christ, who is the fulfillment, when you have the substance, then the shadow passes away. That doesn't change who God is, and it doesn't change that we have an obligation to him. So our freedom is not that we can simply ignore God and live our lives however we want to. Elsewhere in Scripture, I don't have the verses here, but it, it says that we become slaves to righteousness. We were slaves to sin, but we become slaves to righteousness. Now, when you hear the word slavery, you think of oppression, you think of slavery is not a good thing. But slavery to righteousness, think about it. If we are born again by the Spirit of God, that makes us children of God. We become, we become sons and daughters of God. Well, as a child of God, we know that God is a loving Father. So to be a slave of righteousness means, sure, I'm a slave to God, but he's a loving Father. He's not a cruel taskmaster. He's a good God. He's a good Father. So being a slave to righteousness is not, not a bad thing. We know the bondage of being a slave to sin. That is a bad thing. So my freedom in Christ needs to be expressed in that reality, the, re the reality that I'm a child of God and that God is a good Father. So my freedom has to, has to be expressed knowing all that. So you are free to do what God wants you to do. You are free to show God love because he loved you first. So your freedom will be expressed in how you obey God, how you honor God. It's going to be expressed in your desire to worship God. All those things. Freedom in Christ versus being a slave to sin could not be more opposite. A, a person who is a slave to sin, Scripture talks about this. I think it's in, uh, in John 8, verses 34 to 36. Jesus said this. He says, Jesus answered them, Most assuredly, I say to you, whoever commits sin is a slave of sin. Now, 
Someone who is living in sin and has no desire to serve God would say that they are in freedom. I get to do whatever I want to do. I can. I live how I want. No one's going to tell me what to do. And they say I'm free. Well, Jesus says the servant of sin, he's actually, he's not free to do what he wants to do. He actually has to sin. He is not free to do righteousness. He's free to do what's right, at least not in a sustainable way. So whoever is in sin, Jesus says he's a slave to sin, and a slave does not abide in the house forever, but a son abides forever. Therefore, if the son makes you free, you shall be free indeed. So a sinner thinks that he has, he's able to make his own choices, but the only choice a person who is, is a slave to sin, the only choice they can make is what kind of sin? A preference for sin. They're not free to live out, uh, to live out God's commands. They don't, they're in bondage. They are unable to. He can attempt to get free of sin, but he will only fail. And the law proved that. The law became, became death. The law was not able to set man free. That is still being proved today by those who are in sin. All right, I'd like for you to look now at our text, the main text. In Gal- I started off with Galatians 5, verse 1, where he says to stand fast. I want to zero in on these four verses for this morning. Galatians 5, 13 to 16. And if you are able, uh, please stand with me and let's read these four verses together. <clears throat> Shall we read? For brethren, ye have been called unto liberty. Only use not liberty for an occasion to the flesh, but by love serve one another. For all the laws fulfilled in one word, even in this, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. But if ye might devour one another, take heed that ye do not consume one another. This I say then, walk in the Spirit, and ye shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Thank you. You may be seated. You know, there are, I would say there are many modern churches today that brand themselves as being seeker-friendly. You've probably heard that term before. We're seeker-friendly. We have what you want here. Just, just come here, and we're going to help you find what it is that you're looking for. <clears throat> There's probably an element of truth in that. When a person is truly seeking Christ, we want to be, be available for that. Um, there's, you may have already been in a, in a setting where there has been kind of a mass call put out for anyone who comes, wants to come receive Christ, just, just come forward. Uh, we've had that happen probably in the past, sometimes in, in very good ways. I remember being at a, at a um, I think it was an Easter-type play one time years ago at a big church, and after the play was done, without much ado, the pastor got up and he just he said, if anybody wants to have Jesus as their personal Savior, come forward. And crowds of people went up and and you know that night they received Jesus. I've wondered already sometimes about that. Is that enough? Are we simply calling people to, to make a mental assent to something or to an agreement with God? Do we make the gospel? Sometimes we wonder: Do we make the gospel too difficult? And then sometimes you look at situations like that, and I wondered: Is this really how how it is? Do we just? Make a decision for Christ and there's no further thought and then we keep living. Is, is Jesus added to my life? In other words, is that how we view the faith in Christ? That it's something that we got to have to be free from sin. It's something we have to have to remove our guilt and to be free of judgment. 
how, how do we view all that? What is it? What does it all really mean? I'm concerned that there are, there are times when this has been done and people think that, that they're good. They prayed the sinner's prayer and then they keep living their lives as though nothing is different. Uh, will they come to judgment thinking all is well but maybe have never truly found liberty in Christ? That's not for us to judge, but it's, it's for us to think about. What, what is this liberty? There are those who intentionally, I think, have led people astray. Second Peter talks about that. Uh, it talks about those who are false prophets. It calls them, they're like brute beasts. They're following their own desires, their own lusts, and they're leading people astray. Second uh, Peter 2.19 says, while they, it's talking about these false teachers, he says, while they promise them liberty, those that they are teaching, they're promising them liberty, they themselves are the servants of corruption, for of whom a man is overcome, of the same as he brought in bondage. So there, there are those, there are um, times when, when liberty is offered, but maybe it's offered in a way saying, you don't have to do anything. All you have to do is have faith. It's all you have to do is have faith. God will take care of the rest. Is that, is that all that there's to it? We need to be careful that we know what the scriptures say. One thing I think should be very clear to all of us about freedom in Christ. Freedom in Christ is not, um, freedom in Christ will always put us on a path of sanctification, of us becoming like Christ. That much is clear. Freedom in Christ is not found in self-fulfillment. Come here and all your needs will be met. Come here and God will smile on you and he will give you everything you need. He'll meet all your needs. It's not self, that's not what freedom in Christ is. It's not freedom from pain or freedom from a broken world. We still live in the realities of a broken world. Just this past week, we were just talking this morning, there's just a number of deaths that have happened. There's diagnoses of, of um, cancer and bad health and those kinds of things. That's, that's the reality and, and we're not promised to be delivered from all that necessarily. So we need to be careful that we don't paint freedom in Christ as being somehow we just get to float above all this and, and life's going to be good for us. There may still be much struggle and much pain and sorrow. But in Christ, our freedom, we have been set free now to actually do what's right, to actually fulfill what God put us on this earth to do. We are not free from God's moral law. We are free from the ceremonial law, I believe. Paul laid that case out very clearly. He was addressing the Jews who were requiring this. And by the way, I don't think I have this verse down. I think it's in chapter 5. Paul even points out that those Jews of the circumcision, they weren't following the law either. They were afraid. Or they, it was for their own glory. They were glorying in, in maybe the people they were bringing in. But it was, it was because of the offense of the cross, the persecution they didn't want to face is one of the reasons why they went down this road. So they didn't really even believe it, but it was an easier route. The cross was, was offensive, and this freedom, this liberty, uh, it was easier almost to slide into Judaism and to keep the old ways than to actually live for Christ and, and bear a cross. We are not free from God's moral law because God's character and being is unchanging. God's moral law didn't change. The ceremonial law was, was finished, but God has never changed who he is. So therefore, freedom in Christ doesn't mean that we can have some flippant attitude towards God. He still is who he is. He still is God. And the law, the moral law, reflects the very nature of God. 
So in these four verses, what does freedom in Christ mean? A couple observations I want to make here. First one is, uh, number one, we see that in verse uh, 13 of, of our text. It says, For brethren, ye have been called unto liberty. Only use not liberty for an occasion to the flesh. So now we are free to oppose our flesh. I said before, Jesus said that the servant of sin, he's a slave to sin. He cannot work out any kind of a righteousness. He might do some good works, but he's, he's bound. He cannot be free from sin. Well, when Christ comes, when Christ has set us free, we're actually free to oppose the flesh. We actually have the power that probably for centuries uh, people did not have. They were looking towards a day when Christ would come and set them free. But their faith was based in a promise, the promise of Abraham. Well, now it's been accomplished. And he says, we, we, can, now, we can now live and we can, we can say no to our flesh. We can oppose our flesh. And there's power there. Uh, Romans chapter 8, verses 1 to 4, he says, There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. And then here he says, For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus hath made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh, God sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin condemned sin in the flesh that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. That righteousness that the law was calling for can now be fulfilled if you are walking with God's Spirit. So, we are free to oppose the flesh. doesn't mean we're, gonna, we're not, not going to face challenges, temptations, and struggles, but brothers and sisters, we do not have to be bound in sin. Sometimes we have those roots that go pretty deep into our lives, maybe bad habits, uh, sin patterns. We find it hard to get free, but Christ has set us free from that. We are free to oppose our flesh. Further down in Galatians 5, we're not going to read it, but when it talks about the works of the flesh, I just want to point this out yet as well. It says that all, those, all who do those things will not inherit the kingdom of God. I'm going to go back to that a statement I made earlier about uh, when people are, are called to come to Christ, but they're never called to a path of, of sanctification and of, and of the works of the Spirit. Here he talks about the works of the flesh. And he, he spells out a whole bunch of sins. And he says those that are doing these things, he says they're not, they're not going to be in the kingdom of God. So if there's, a, if there's a proclamation of someone being a Christian, says, yeah, I'm, I'm in the kingdom. But these fruits are there, the works of the flesh. He makes it very clear, this person is not part of the kingdom of God. They're not going to inherit the kingdom of God. So that should sober us. Think about that. Talked earlier about freedom. All freedoms are limited. So even our freedom in Christ is limited to a degree. Anything that God requires of us or forbids, or forbids us supersedes our freedom. Adam and Eve had the entire garden. They were free to go anywhere they wanted except for one limitation and one tree. We know how that story went. Same with us. Whatever God explicitly commands or whatever God explicitly forbids, uh, that, is, that is a limitation to our freedom. But that is not oppressive. It's not oppressive to obey God. I heard a quote the other day. Uh, someone said, at the other end of obedience is joy. So when someone thinks that, yeah, they're, they're free to sin and this is great, I get to do whatever I want, Freedom actually comes and joy comes when we obey. 
at the other end of obedience, even though we don't always understand why God calls us to certain things, when we choose to obey, there's joy. There is there's peace and satisfaction that you'll never find by giving in to sin and living a, a life of sin. Because we have God who sees the big picture, and God is a loving Father who always gives us what is best for us. question I want you to think about, especially you young people, what do we do about things in this... What do we do about um, our freedom and maybe decisions to make when it's not explicitly laid out in Scripture? You know, some, some things today are just, they're just not in the Bible because, well, they didn't exist in Bible times. There's just, there's no guidance, specific guidance in the Bible about how to handle media or how to handle um, just your recreation and some of the things that you like to pursue. Some things like that are not explicitly laid out. So how do we go about understanding how to exercise that liberty. I have uh, about five questions I'm going to give you here. If you want to write them down, it would be something for you to, uh, helpful for you to think about later on. Five questions to help us make good decisions regarding liberty, and liberty as in our liberty in Christ. Am I free to do whatever I want? Here's the first question. I'll give you a reference after it. First question is this. Is this spiritually profitable when you're thinking about an issue in life or maybe a practice or maybe something you want to do? Uh, a first question can be, is this spiritually profitable? Reference for that, 1 Corinthians 6.12. Paul says, all things are lawful unto me, but all things are not expedient. Expedient can mean beneficial. Is this thing beneficial? Now, this is probably, these questions are all regarding things that are, that are not sin. Okay, We already know that sin is forbidden. Our, free, our freedom in Christ does not allow us to sin. So I'm talking about non-sin issues. How do you decide on non-sin issues that are not specifically in Scripture? Well, is this going to be beneficial to me? Paul asked that question. Second question, will it build me up? Will it build me up? So the first question was more, is, it, is there any benefit? But now the next question takes it a bit higher. Is this actually, like, good for me? Is it actually going to help me grow? First uh, Corinthians 10, 23. This almost is like the verse we just read, but it's actually a, two chapter, a couple chapters later, four chapters later. All things are lawful for me, but all things are not expedient. All things are lawful for me, but all things edify not. Edify means to help build up. So that could be a second question when you're considering an issue. Is this something that builds me up? Or is it tearing me down? Whether it's in my character, whether it's in my thoughts, or whether it's a different thing, my habits. Will it build me up? Is it profitable and will it build me up? A third question. Once you've answered the first two, what about the third question? Will it hinder my running of the race? I'm talking about our Christian life. It's described as a race. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1 says, Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which thus so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us. He says to lay aside every weight. Weight is baggage. It's just something that hinders. He also mentions sin there, but we're not talking about sin. We already know that's forbidden. But he says, let us lay aside every weight. Is this thing that you're wanting to do going to be a drag on your spiritual life? 
Think about it now. Is there anything, is there baggage in your life? Maybe something you're doing or something you're reading or something you're taking part in that is it like a, it's like a ball and chain that, you know, you're trying to run your race, but this thing just kind of is preventing growth. Uh, it's preventing good relationships maybe. And maybe in your Christian life you feel kind of stuck. Think about baggage. What kind of weight do you have on there? Number four. If I do this, will it be likely to start a habit? Going back to 1 Corinthians 6.12, that was our, our reference for the first one. I'm going to read the last half of that verse now. He starts by saying, All things are lawful unto me, but all things are not expedient. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be brought under the power of any. I will not be brought under the power of any. Hmm, that sounds a lot like an addiction. A habit that is controlling me. Is this freedom, this thing that you may feel like you have freedom in, could this become a habit? Is it going to become an addiction that's hard to break free of? I remember thinking about that when I first got a smartphone because that, up to that point, it's been a number of years now since I had a smartphone, a smartphone, up to that point, I remember observing the changes I was seeing in people that had smartphones. I noticed how they would go in a room you know, of people and they'd sit down and they'd be like this and everybody around them was trying to have a conversation. I thought, I don't want that. So I start thinking, well, am I going to do the same thing? So think about that. Is this going to become a habit? It, it'll give us some guidance in our decision. It may even help us decide how we're going to handle something. But is it going to create a negative life pattern? Am I going to lose something by going down this path? Is this thing I'm deciding upon, is it going to become a drain on my resources? My money, does it cost a lot, whatever this thing may be? My energy, am I going to be tired all the time because I'm pursuing this? Maybe it's a hobby or whatever it is. My time, my focus, this thing that the Bible doesn't forbid, but it really consumes my life. Is it really a good thing for me? Is it a drain? Do I have a hard time focusing on God and his word? The fifth question. Will it be consistent with Christ's likeness? I think that's a question every one of us can ask all the time. 1 John 2.6 He that saith he abideth in him ought himself also so to walk, even as he walked. That's talking about us walking the way Jesus walked. We can look at Jesus' life and say, is this the kind of thing Jesus would do? It's a good question to ask about some of these things of liberty. Is Would this be consistent with, with the character and the mind of Christ? I believe a sincere Christ, Christian is never asking the question regarding freedom, how much can I get away with? What can I do and still be saved? That's not, that's not the question of a Christian. Or how much baggage can I have and it's still, you know, we could, we kind of are going to slide on into heaven at the end. That's not the way a follower of Jesus looks at life. Instead, I think the question we should be asking ourselves as Christians is, am I using my freedom in Christ to first of all glorify God, because that's the chief duty of man is to glorify God? Is everything I'm doing glorifying God? Is everything I'm doing aligning myself with God's priorities? As you read the scripture and you see the heart of God and you see his commands, is that are my decisions helping me align with that purpose? Or am I just serving myself? 
Am I using my freedom to, to please myself? Because, well, the Bible doesn't forbid it. So think about those things. Some questions to maybe help us uh, as we are determining what our liberty is. Come back to our passage here. I need to bring this to a close here. First uh, thing we addressed back in our passage in Galatians 5, this was, uh, this was verse 13, we are free to oppose our flesh, uh, I'm sorry, our flesh, our flesh. Uh, what's the second thing here? The second thing is we are free to serve others. We see that at the end of verse 13. But by love, serve one another. By love, serve one another. Our freedom in Christ is a freedom to serve others. Isn't that actually quite profound? Who wants to serve others that is not in Christ? Think of the most, our, our base instinct of selfishness, of self-interest. If that's who we are without Christ, our, our interest is never in serving others. But we have been set free in Christ. We've been delivered from sin. And we actually, our focus moves off of ourselves and it starts to move it out to our neighbor, to those around us. But by love, and that's agape, by, by that, that love that only Jesus can give serve one another. We start to look at life. Our freedom is a freedom not just to get to do what we want. Our freedom is I get to serve other people and I can do it with joy and I can do it with, with nothing, hoping for nothing in return because of what Christ has done in me. That's freedom, a freedom to serve others. Will I use my freedom to build up others? This is a freedom from selfishness. Another thing in this idea of serving others um, we're not going to take much time on this, but in the body of Christ, matters of freedom and conscience are not only a question for myself, but also how it affects others. Paul addressed the idea of eating meat with a weaker brother, meat offered to idols. And Paul made it very clear that we should never use our liberty as a stumbling block to someone who was weak. He talks about that in 1 Corinthians 8-9. Do not use your liberty in a way that it could cause someone else to stumble. You may have personal freedom of conscience. There may be other issues you, you can think about right now. There may be some things where you could say, yeah, I, I would have the freedom to do this, but I know very well that this brother would, would be offended. In fact, I know very well that if I exercise my freedom, my brother might look at me and say, oh, he, he can do it, and I can too, and it turns out to be an addiction for him. Matters of conscience are not just for ourselves, but also how do they affect our brother. Our liberty is limited by the conscience of others as well. That sounds restrictive, but brothers, I think the law of love is at play here. How does this affect my brothers and sisters? We can maybe feel a bit of resentment sometimes when we have limitations. Maybe even at a church level, we feel like, well, this isn't necessary. But is it just for my own interest or is it for the body of Christ? Think about that. I am now free to serve others. 1 Corinthians 10, 31 to 33 says, Wherefore, th Whether therefore ye eat or drink or whatsoever ye do, do all to the what? Someone say it out loud. To the glory of God. Then he says right after that, Give none offense, neither to the Jews, nor to the Gentiles, nor to the church of God. Glorify God, don't offend even as I please all men in all things, not seeking mine own profit, but the profit of many that they may be saved. That's a, that's a switch. But freedom in Christ will, will cause me to see life that way, to see people that way.
not seeking my own profit, but the profit of many that they may be saved. Number three, we are free to fulfill the law at its highest level. We'll see that in verse 14. For all the law is fulfilled in one word, even in this, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. That's a pretty astounding statement. He says we can fulfill the whole law in one, in one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. The natural man cannot fully do that. The carnal man cannot fully love his neighbor. Not when his, not when his neighbor is mean to him. Not when his neighbor is obnoxious. He can't do that. But God's people who have agape are able to fulfill the command of Christ in this. We actually fulfill the law, and it's at a very high level. It's at a very high level. Uh, somebody could have sincerely followed the, the ceremonial law every, every letter to the letter, and still at some, at some point would have fallen short. But now in Christ, we are free to fulfill the intent of the law, loving our neighbor as ourselves. I think it was Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, this is the law and the prophets. In the end, it was about love. And love could never be coerced. Love could never be uh, forced. It had to be voluntary. And the only way that could be produced in the hearts of men is through the Spirit of God living in us. We are free to fulfill that law at its highest level. Number four, we are free to avoid destructive conflict. You see that in the next verse there, verse 15. But if ye bite and devour one another, take heed ye be not consumed one of another. Biting and devouring one another. It's very much... Uh, a picture of, of selfishness. Freedom in Christ is so much better than being able to do everything I want. Freedom comes through surrender, through yielding my rights and denying my own selfish ambition. You know, it's amazing how freedom, it's, it's also that way in, in just everyday living. I, I gave the example at the beginning about you get on the highway and now, now you have to follow the rules. But you know what? I, we were on a trip a week ago. And when you're driving down the highway, and when you know, you know you're driving the speed limit or at least close enough where, where you're not considered a violator, I don't check my rearview mirror a whole lot. You know, when I see an officer parked in the median, my heart doesn't start pounding. And, but you know, when, you know it when you're speeding and when you're just, there is just a sense of who's watching and am I going to get caught. Freedom actually comes by surrender. It's the same in Christ. When we're pushing up against Christ and his, and his law or his word, then we find that same, that same kind of agitation in our hearts. So freedom comes through surrender, through yielding my rights and denying my own selfish ambitions. When my life is centered around my own personal rights and freedom, like he says here, biting and devouring, when I am concerned about myself, invariably, I will leave behind a wake of conflict, damaged relationships, broken relationships. It's just the way it is. When we are self-focused and looking at exercising our own freedom, it just creates havoc around us. And what happens is, in turn, that eventually is returned to us. He says very clearly here, you bite and devour. He says, take heed that ye be not consumed. What we give and what we live out is often what comes back to us. I hope this morning all of you are experiencing true freedom in Christ. And as you remember the freedom of our nation tomorrow, um, I hope that reminds us all that we've been given freedom for even a higher calling. That's the changed heart, a changed life. We can live this out. Verse 16 in our passage here, 
shows us where the power comes from. He says, this I say then, walk in the spirit and ye shall not fulfill the lust of the, of the flesh. The lust of the flesh, that used to be, we used to be slaves to that when we were still in sin. The lust of our flesh, whatever our flesh wants, we were a slave uh, to that. We've been set free. So he says, keep walking in the spirit, be in step with the spirit. And he says, you're not going to fulfill the lust of the flesh. I believe, brothers and sisters, that is the source of true freedom. And by God's grace, I want to live in that freedom, and I hope you can too. Shall we kneel to pray? Thank you, Father, for freedom. Thank you for freedom from the guilt of sin, the penalty of sin, judgment of sin. Lord, we believe that Jesus took our place on Calvary, and for that, we are eternally grateful. Father, we just pray that you would help us to understand what our freedom really means. Lord, you have set us free to not be in bondage to sin, but now to live in righteousness and holiness and sanctification. Lord, our desire is to become more like you in our character, in our relationships, in our choices, all the things in life that we, that we uh, are part of. We just pray this morning, Lord, that you would help us to, um, to understand our freedom, but also to, to live in that freedom. Thank you, Lord, for your truth uh, that, can, that can show us these things. And Lord, thank you for the truth that you promise will set us free. We pray this all in the worthy name of Jesus. Amen.